Welcome to this new Ubula Audio bookcast presentation of The Doomsday Affair by Harry Whittington, book number two in the Man from Uncle series. This one was published in 1965 and has been out of print for many, many decades. Harry Whittington is best known for his hard-boiled noir thrillers and many westerns. He was born in 1915 and was one of the original founders of the paperback novel. For some time, Whittington wrote novelettes for the Man from Uncle magazine under the name Robert Hart Davis in the 1960s. And in 1965, the magazine's publisher wanted him to write an original full-length novel to cash in on the popularity of the TV series. There was, however, a catch. Where Whittington had always previously signed royalty contracts, the publisher offered him a flat fee of $1,500 for the purchase of all rights. Advised to accept this offer by his agent, and based on his shaky finances, Whittington agreed to write The Doomsday Affair. In this new story, Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kiriak, the super agents of the spy agency Uncle, once again come up against the international espionage organization Thrush. Here they are searching for a Thrush agent who is loose in the U.S. Wealthy Uncle Computer Files can tell nothing about the agent except for his code name, Tixie Ilno, which is a very bad anagram for Exit Only. Unfortunately, Exit Only may be anyone a cab driver, a storekeeper, a corporation executive, or a cop. Anyone. And he might be anywhere in the United States. But whoever or wherever he is, Uncle has to find him because he controls a doomsday secret that may have the world at his mercy. And now, The Doomsday Affair. Part 1. Incident in Pink, Hawaii. Chapter 1. An instant before, she'd been alive. One moment she was laughing, so darkly lovely that she'd ignite a faraway look in any man's eyes. Simply being in the same room with her could be an unnerving experience. Yet she'd been anxious to unburden herself, frightened, troubled, wanting to get down to the serious business of a confidential talk with Solo on the subject of a mutual enemy. Let me get out of this lay and into something more comfortable, was what she'd said. And then abruptly she was dead. Napoleon Solo stood immobile staring at the bewitching corpse without a face. He swallowed hard, thinking she was the loveliest corpse between where she lay on the pink shag rug and eternity. For this moment, checkmated by shock, he caught a glimpse of himself in the pink mirror. Deceptively slender, no more than medium height, he had the smart appearance of a young intern, a Madison Avenue account exec, a youthful, professional man swinging his way through the fabled gay paths of the globe. He looked like anything except what he was, a diamond-hard, exhaustively trained enforcement agent for perhaps the most important secret service in the world, the United Network Command for Law Enforcement. His smile was easy, distilled of a genuine warmth and an inner glow of a healthy, fine-honed body. His jacket and slacks impeccably tailored with a Brooks Brother quality, 
but the disarming cut concealed a strapped-down Burns Martin shoulder holster housing its hidden Uncle Special, 37 ounces of deadly weapon, including silencer. Solo shook his head, stunned, even while the substantial fragment of his precision-trained intellect warned him that he could join her in eternity in the seconds it was costing him to recover from horror and the outrage of her murder. He'd encountered sudden death often enough in his work with Uncle, but this girl was so young and so lovely and so abruptly mutilated. He glanced at the gold face of his Accutron watch, mechanically noting the time. Time no longer had meaning for Ursula, but he still operated for an agency where time was forever of the essence. A faint breeze faltered in hesitant curiosity in the pink window drapes. The fabric bent inward gently, then expired against the full-length windows as if the breeze had darted in terror back out to the sandy beach which lay like stained carpeting between the pink hotel and the incredible blue of the sea. Solo broke the spell at last, stepped forward, and bent down beside the dead girl. He scraped his fingers along the rug, attempting to assemble the atoms of flower and string that had, until recently, been a lay of ginger flowers, tossed over Ursula's head with a laughing aloha at the Honolulu International Airport less than an hour before. Solo shook his head again, refusing to accept it. Murder? from a lay? He scowled. Aloha meant both hello and goodbye, hail and farewell. So long, Ursula. She'd reached up with those golden arms to remove the lay over her head, and the mechanism concealed in the bright ginger flowers had blown her face away. There had not even been time for her to cry out, or for Solo to reach her from across the pink bed. Solo straightened up, shaking off the horror of her sudden and brutal death. It was as if someone compounded of evil had searched diligently to find the most heartless manner of death for lovely Ursula Baines Neeferth. She was vain about the classic perfection of her delicately hewn face. Blow it away, then. They'll seal her casket and sew her in a shroud. Solo warned himself for the last time that emotionalism in his job was taboo because it softened him, strangled his thought processes, rendered him ineffective to his profession and to himself. The next instant, he began to move efficiently, as if unaware of the corpse on the pink carpeting. From his attaché case, he withdrew a small, chrome, plastic and metal rectangle that fit snugly into his palm. From an upper edge, he pulled two thread-like antennae that trembled reed-like in the scented breeze from the Banyan Park. He pressed a button on the sender set, blew into the golden netted speaker, waited a moment, and then spoke slowly, enunciating clearly. Bubba, this is Sunny. Acknowledge. Mayday. Acknowledge, please. He pressed a second button and stood staring his eyes fixed on the beach without seeing it. My kiki was loud with laughter, bright with bikinis, 
busy with surfboards and children building castles in the sand. The sea lay milk-blue with the sun shimmering on it. In the midst of all this pleasure, he was concerned with death, death and failure. Earthless death, his own failure. More than a lovely girl had blown up when that ginger lay had exploded. From where does death always strike? From the most innocent appearing sources of all. A lay of ginger flowers had erupted in violent murder, and his chance to find Tixie Ilno had gone up in a sudden flash of time. He grimaced. You got in a place like this, a pink resort hotel in an unreal Pacific vacation land, and you relaxed, and then death struck, and failure. It was over, and months of intensive preparation were fragmented like the petals of those ginger flowers. Sami, this is Baba, acknowledging, over. It was Ilya's voice, and he felt a sense of relief. The small sender receiver in his hand crackled and then was still. Solo prowled the room, counting, and then he crossed to the corridor door, listened a moment, and opened it. Ilya Kiryakin grinned at him from beneath a thatch of golden hair. A slender Slavic type, his enigmatic smiling hid all his emotions and thoughts. Congenitally a loner, he was clever and physically adept. Solo had learned that Ilya was a good man to have at his side in a tight spot. It was easy to think that Ilya was like a machine, computing danger and finding solutions for it, fashioned for a specific purpose. Sometimes nothing seemed to exist for him but the task assigned to him. Of Russian origin, Ilya had worked behind the Iron Curtain, sometimes with the knowledge and consent of the authorities, and when necessary, without it. He trained himself to move fast and never to look back because he learned the unpleasant way that the devil takes the man who is caught. At the moment, Ilya wore the smartly crisp uniform of a hotel bellhop, and for all the expression in his high-planed face, he might well have had no interest in this world except the size of his anticipated tip. He said, You mentioned Mayday. Solo spoke flatly. She's dead. Ilya, pushed by him, entered the room. He stood for a full second, staring at the lovely body, the faceless corpse. He shook his head. It was a lay, Solo said. What? Kiryakin spun on his heel. She was pulling it over her head, some kind of mechanism. It blew to bits, along with everything else. It was like a Chinese firecracker. And there was a blast of air, a vacuum. It was all over before I could move. Helia straightened. Who sold her the lay? Solo frowned, remembering. Nobody. Nobody sold it to her. It was thrown over her head at the airport. A lot of laughter from a well-wisher. Uh, I heard that much. That was it. Who put it over her head? Solo removed a cigarette lighter from his pocket and flicked it so the fire flared. He extended the lighter to Ilya. She's on here, whoever it was. 
The moment I heard that well-wishing no-charge bit, I lit a cigarette and snapped her picture. You might want to print them. You're on the roll, in all your bellhop glory. Ilya nodded and took three small, black plastic cups from Solo's attaché bag. He tore open the foil sacks of powder, developer, and setting chemical, added water from the bathroom tap to the three cups. He broke open the cigarette lighter camera and inserted the protective film roll into the first cup. The protective skin over the film dissolved on contact with the liquid. Working, Ilya spoke over his shoulder. What did you learn from her? Solo shook his head. Nothing. She was scared. We already knew that. I tried to get her to relax. Three months, Ilya said. Shut to hell. Never mind beating me over the head with it. Thanks very much. I'm not blaming you. Maybe I'm blaming myself. She was a spy. She was trying to quit Thrush. She must have known better. Why should she think she could make it? I promised her. Nobody's perfect. Whoever planned to kill her had it arranged well in advance. That's for sure. No one knew she was meeting you here except the two of us, Waverly, and the man from the president's staff. Somebody knew about it. Solo prowled the room, turning this over in his mind. Kiriakin continued working, and none of what he must have been thinking showed in his flat, impassive face. Somebody knew where Ursula was going to be, and where and when and how to bypass her fears, her instinct for preservation, her caution, and mine. Solo spread his hands. It takes its own kind of intellect to come up with a scheme so simple and so foolproof. Abruptly, Solo stopped talking and strode across the room to the baggage rack, where the single beige Sansonite Weekender bag had rested since the bellhop placed it there when he came into the room with Ursula. The clatter of their relaxed voices still clamored in his brain. He reached for the bag and withdrew his hands. At the precise instant, Elia spoke warningly from the bathroom door. Watch it. They stared at each other and Solo gave Elia a somber caricature of a smile. Your old systems go again, Kiriakin assured him with a faint grin. Solo strode to the attaché case, returned with a handheld explosive detector. He ran it across the case along its sides. Gently, he turned the weekender over and repeated the process without getting a reaction from the minute needle. He tossed the detector to Elia, who returned it casually to the attaché case. Solo released the catches and opened the case. He stared into it, not speaking. After a moment, he was aware of Elia beside him, as speechless. Inside the suitcase were two objects. Otherwise, it was bare. There was a letter addressed to Ursula, King's Hotel, Nassau, Bahamas. There was no return address. But the cancellation showed San Francisco, 2 p.m., July 12th. Beside the letter, carefully coiled, was a silver whip that glittered when it caught the errant rays of the sun. Solo opened the envelope, removed the single sheet of cheap typing paper. 
He unfolded it and held it so that both he and Elia could scan it. It's meaningless, Karyakin said. If it's a code, it's their own private make, Solo said. The whip, Elia said. Does this register? Solo frowned, aware of the tail end of a thought flashing through the deep crannies of his mind, darting but landing nowhere. There was a meaning to the whip, something that had been revealed to them in the briefing on Ursula Baines Neferth at the New York headquarters of Uncle. It'll come to me, he said coldly. It's got to. Elia glanced at his watch. Meantime, it's been thirty minutes up here. All right. Solo loosened his tie, unbuttoned his shirt, and in the same downward movement unbuckled his belt, unzipped his trousers, and stepped out of them. At the same time, Elia was removing his bellhop uniform. They exchanged clothing with maximum speed deficiency. Elia checked his watch again. When you've been out of here for five minutes, I'll call the police and notify the desk before I walk out. And don't forget, use the service elevator, will you? Solo donned the bellhop uniform. With the trousers on, he crossed the room, returning from the bathroom with the strip-developed film. Drying it beneath the light for a moment, he held the strip under a magnifying glass and scanned it. There she is. She looks like a Chinese doll, doesn't she? Huh. A real little death doll. Two. Even in the flesh, the flower girl looked like a doll. Solo found her in the terminal building at the Honolulu airport. He moved through the crowds, thinking how easy it had been. The only delay had been in changing from the bellhop uniform into jacket and slacks in the men's room at Kapiolani Park. Carrying his attaché case, he had returned to his rented Chevy and crossed town, going directly out to the airfield. The look of her was the sharpest image in his mind, and suddenly he saw her, exactly as if she had stepped from the snapshot. He paused a moment and then strode toward her. There were other girls around her, all colorfully dressed in mumus or draped in holokus, brightly printed with flowers. But the Chinese girl stood out from them as if she were alone. It wasn't quite five feet tall, but her figure and everything else about her was perfect. The delicate china skin, the black hair worn straight, starched, and ironed almost to her shoulders. She looked as though if you turned a key in her back, she'd say mama or papa. He sidled through the laughing groups, delightfully working his eyes back and forth over her finding her more elegant than the gay strings of lays on her arm. Then he remembered the lays she had thrown over Ursula's head, and some of that beauty faded. The impact of his unwavering gaze somehow communicated itself to the Chinese doll. Sola saw her head jerk up, her almond eyes black and frightened suddenly recognizing him. Fear seeped down from her eyes and her lips parted. She shook her head. Sola walked faster. She turned, looking around like a small, trapped animal. Then she brought her gaze back to Solo's face. She looked ill. She reached out futilely toward the girl nearest her, then changed her mind and did not speak to her after all. 
Instead, she dropped the lace from her arm, pushed between the girls in front of her, and ran toward the exits. The girls turned, chattering like minor birds, calling after her, some of them laughing. Solo changed his course, tacking hard right toward the doors on the street. Look where you're going, young man. A stout woman had caught his arm and was shaking it with vigorous disapproval. Far ahead, he saw the girl's darting run. She went racing past startled people. He tried to follow her with his eyes, but then he had to bring his attention back to the woman who was shaking him and to the women around him. There were a dozen of them and none under sixty, all being shepherded by a uniformed island guide. Solo apologized, trying to push his way through them. They all wore lays, carried straw plunder bags, and wore comfortable shoes. Clearly, they were on an all-expense tour straight from the Midwest. I beg your pardon, Solo said, trying to look at the woman grasping his arm, and yet not lose sight of the girl who flitted like a sparrow in the sun beyond the doors. I'm sorry. What's your hurry, young man? Why don't you look where you're going? The woman said. Make him stay after school, Esther. One of the other women laughed. Reminded that she was not in the quarters of her school, the large woman released Solo's arm. Flushing slightly, she said, You should look where you're going. Solo nodded, trying to step through them, and the confusion they created. They milled around him and the bronze-skinned guide like sheep, all bleating at once. He managed to reach the brink of the flock, and he backed away, still nodding, but headed toward the street exits again. Look out! The woman and her French poodle yelped at the same instant. Solo stopped cold, turning. She was as tall as Solo in her spike heels. She was metallically sleek from her stockings to her hat, as if her beauty was something anodized upon long-submerged framework. He found himself startled because she was all in pink, and the carefully trimmed poodle was dyed a matching pink. The color brought back the room in the hotel at Waikiki and the dead girl. He stepped around the pink, yapping dog, aware that the herd of women was milling around, bleating toward him again. He ran for the doors. He went through them, but the delay had given the china doll all the time she needed to elude him. He stopped on the sunbright walk, looking around. Cars were lined in the parking area. He brought his gaze back to the walk. The girl was gone. He had lost her. Solo stood unmoving for a moment. The sharp pop of a starting motorcycle snagged his attention and he heeled around toward it. The cycle missed, caught, and smoke flared. The cycle raced out from between two cars coming directly towards Solo and the exit of the airport. Solo stepped forward, seeing the bright moo-moo of the China doll behind the cycle operator. The boy wore a gaudy purple and yellow shirt and skin-tight pants. His thick black hair was cropped close to his skull. His ancestry was a wild mixture of Hawaiian, Chinese, and Polynesian. He was stocky, keg-chested, shoulders bunched with muscles. His bull neck, thick lips, a flat wide nose, black eyes under thick brows, and a narrow forehead. The girl clung to the boy, both her arms locked around his stout midriff. Solo moved out, trying to slow them down. He saw the boy lower his head, feeding gas into the machine. It popped loudly 
and raced past him. Solo leapt back for the curb. He wasted no time trying to figure out their direction. The flower girl and her beach boy had only one idea, getting out of there. Solo ran to his rented car and leapt into it. He came out on the road and far ahead of him, he saw the motorcycle swing out onto Dillingham Boulevard without slowing down. The screech of brakes, the protesting clatter of horns struck at him. He settled down to the business of driving and attempting to keep the reckless cyclist inside. The small vehicle bounced along the inside lane, cut in between speeding cars. They passed the Oahu prison and sped across the Kapalama drainage canal into downtown Honolulu. Brakes screeched as the cycle went left off Dillingham onto narrow Rabello Street. Solo pulled over, slowed, and made the turn. He was just in time to see the two make another left onto busy King Street, again without stopping or slowing down. He was forced to stop at the intersection of King. The cyclist went right on Bangin Street off King, going into the Palama settlement. Solo followed as swiftly as he could. The beach boy whipped his cycle right onto Vineyard, and again right onto River Street, going to Baratania. Solo turned right onto Baratania, watching the cycle ahead through the traffic. He saw them slow down. He had figured they were attempting to shake him, but he felt now that they had some destination in mind, a place where they could ditch the cycle and lose him at the same time. The boy swung his cycle right onto Aala, but was forced to straighten out, blocked by a Chinese dragon dance loud with fireworks. The cycle rolled uncertainly now, the boy jerking his head, looking both ways. The girl stared across her shoulder. They flicked between moving cars, forced back to King Street. Here the boy made a hard right turn into the intersection at Hotel Street and poured the gas to it. Solo kept after them, fighting through the afternoon traffic of downtown Honolulu until it ended at Thomas Square. The boy turned to King Street and then left again to Kalakau Boulevard, going toward Diamond Head. He sped past Fort de Rossi, now in the Waikiki Beach area, passing the high-rise hotels, the Royal Hawaiian, the Outrigger, going left at Kapiolani Park on Kapahulu Avenue, doubling back toward King Street. Solo stayed in pursuit, realizing that since the beach boy and the follower girl had been forced out of Aala, they were now trying to lose him. Only the brightness of their garb and the flitting of the cycle through the cars kept him on their trail. The boy went left again on King Street, racing toward downtown Honolulu. Solo stepped harder on the gas. A traffic signal caught the cyclists at Nuuanu Avenue. The boy sat a moment, bracing his leg on the pavement. Both he and the girl stared across their shoulders. Suddenly the boy said something to the girl, and then he whipped the cycle right against the light, pedestrians leaping to safety, yelling in shock and rage. Solo followed, seeing the gaudy-hued pair far ahead. The cycle climbed, made a turn on Pacific Heights Road. Solo was forced to slow down on the narrow, twisting street, but the beach boy saw the curves as a challenge. The road curved back to Nuuanu Avenue, and again the cycle whipped right, running scared and going inland. They went past Iolani School, the Royal Museum, climbed past the Country Club golf course toward the high ranges at Nuuanu Pali Pass. 
Solo glanced at his speedometer, seeing he was doing 60. Hillside homes and widespreading banyans whipped past him in the wind. On the outskirts of town, he could gain on the cycle. He stepped harder in the gas, pulling alongside the cycle. The boy and girl stared at him for a moment. The boy's dark face pulled in a wind-smashed grimace, the girl showing only fear. Talk! Solo shouted across his car toward them. The car shivered on the road. I only want to talk! The beach boy slowed the cycle. Exhaling, Solo took his foot off the accelerator, letting the car slow. When the car was down to 30 miles an hour, the boy suddenly spurted ahead on the road, going faster than ever. Swearing, Solo stepped down on the gas. The narrow road seemed to whirl upward through the green ranges, hairpin turns, broken back curves. Cars headed Mackay, south toward the ocean, swerved, their horns craying out in anguished protest. Solo pulled the car close behind the cyclist, blowing his horn at them. The girl turned, gazing at him, across her shoulders, her face set, her hair wild in the wind. Solo shook his head, motioning her to pull the cycle over. When the boy turned, Solo waved his arm toward the roadway's shoulder. The boy's face rutted into a savage laugh that refused. He shook his head, then jerked his gaze around. It all happened at once. A car came down the road around the curve. The boy had allowed the cycle to wander toward the middle lane. Now he wrenched it hard to the right as he negotiated a wide curve that brought them onto the narrow plateau of Nuuanupali Pass. Solo caught his breath, seeing what had to happen, even before the cycle's front tires struck the shale, the volcanic rock on the roadway shoulder. The cycle quivered, going out of control. The boy fought it. The rear wheel bounced far out off the pavement. The boy pulled the cycle around hard. The front tire struck a pothole. The cycle bounded upward, striking against the concrete wall and going over it. Tourists in the parking area turned, screaming. Solo slammed on his brakes. There was no sound as the cycle wheeled and skidded, going over and over down the sheer embankment of the Pali, toward the serene volcanic valley over a thousand feet below. Solo let the car roll until the gas-starved engine shook, gasping. Then he stepped hard on the gas, going around the curve, down the winding road, toward the far side of the island. 3. Ilya Kiryakin replaced the pink phone gently in its cradle, cutting off the incredulous voice of the desk clerk. He stood one more moment then, looking about the room, but not allowing his gaze to touch the corpse of the lovely spy. A breeze riffled the curtains, touched at his face. He tilted his head, seeing the sun-struck beach, the incredible blue water, and the buffalo bulk of Diamond Head up the coast. He shrugged the jacket up his shoulders then, and strode across the room to the corridor door. He took a deep breath, opened it, and stepped out into the hallway. I beg your pardon. A man's voice, cat-soft, Asian-accented, stopped Ilya. He turned slowly, scowling because the man seemed to have materialized from the walls. 
A moment earlier, the pink-toned hallway had appeared deserted. For a brief moment, they exchanged stares, and Elia saw the shocked puzzlement revealed in the other's face, a look quickly replaced by a flat smile. Kiriakin peered at the man's bland smile in the saffron-tinged face. Tall, with the lean, rangy body one associated with a Texan slimmed down from hard work and meager diet, pigeon-chested, knobby-shouldered, the man's narrow head had the mongrel features of a Eurasian. Thinning black hair, high forehead, bushy brows, large nose, thin-lipped mouth, his cheeks high-planed, his inscrutably black eyes tight-lidded. He wore a brightly colored shirt, gray slacks, handwoven sandals, and he carried a heavy cane. Kiriakin shook his head. This wasn't an individual at all, but rather a casual assembly of mismatched parts. He turned and moved toward the elevator. I beg your pardon, the man said again. Kiriakin gestured. Sorry, no speak English. Quite all right. The cat purr voice said, I speak six languages fluently, many dialects. Ilya shook his head again. Sorry, no understand. The taut-skinned yellow face stopped smiling. You understand death, don't you? Kiriakin stared at the long, glittering blade suddenly ejected from the tapered end of the cane. The man brought it up quickly and rested its needle point lightly above Elia's buckle. Kiriakin bit his lip. Death, I understand. The blade remained where it was, unwavering in the bony hand. I need to talk with you, sir. I mean something of a hurry. Shall we talk there, in your room? My room. Elia glanced toward the closed door of the room where Ursula's body lay awaiting the arrival of the hotel management and Honolulu police. There's some mistake. This isn't my room. He saw the faint uncertainty in the man's lean face, as if Elia was not the one he'd expected to find here. The doubt was transient, though, and quickly gone. The blade inched into the fabric of Elia's shirt. Inside the room, sir. I don't even have the key. The man stared at him a moment, produced a key ring, shook one out. Still holding the blade fixed on Kiriakin, he inserted the key, unlocked the door, and swung it open. After you, sir, he said. If you must talk, couldn't we go somewhere for a drink? Elia asked. Inside the room, the man insisted. He touched at him with the blade. Ilya bowed and preceded the tall man into the room. They did not speak, both of them gazing fixedly at the lovely corpse. Ilya, looking up, felt he glimpsed the faintest tug of satisfaction around the thin lips. A friend of yours, Ilya shrugged. She just came in to use the phone. Surely not in that condition. Who are you? You may call me Sam for the little while we will be in contact. What do you want? Must I want anything? Obviously you do, Sam. Perhaps I already have what I want. Ilya nodded. 
then you'll excuse me if I leave, since I am in a bit of a hurry. As he spoke, he began to move toward the door. The tall man took one step and brought up the dagger-like blade, touching its glittering point at Elia's Adam's apple. I insist you stay. You underlined your invitation so tellingly. Elia stepped back toward the center of the room and the blade relaxed. Elia said, You mind if I smoke? It's permitted even before a firing squad. Sam shrugged. Where do you get the impression that I am less than friendly toward you? Smoke, by all means. Elia shook out a cigarette, faced the tall man, and flicked his lighter, wondering if he would ever get the opportunity to develop this film. He glanced around, seeing the scotch on the table. Would you like a drink? Sam seemed to be listening to something, but he nodded, his smile bland. Please. Elia poured scotch over ice cubes in two glasses. He saw Sam watching him carefully. When he returned his lighter to his jacket pocket, he brought out a small white pill between his fingers. He passed his hand over his own glass, lifting the other and extending it toward the watchful Sam. Sam shook his head. I'll let you drink this one. I'll take the other. Elia frowned. But, my dear young fellow, I don't know whom you think you're dealing with. If you hot out with me, don't be so clumsy about it. But, oh, I know, you snapped my picture with the Japanese-made camera cigarette lighter. I would object, but I don't think it matters where you're going. Do you mind giving me some hint as to where this might be? And then you attempt to confuse me by heavy-handed ledger domain. The hand is quicker than the eye, eh? We love it that Americans and Russians oppose us in league with each other. Stupid, unsubtle Americans and heavy-handed Russians. You drop something in this glass and then permit me to see you apparently doctor the glass from which you will drink. Not even very clever, my heavy-handed friend. If you say so. The black eyes now in cold assurance. You will drink down the glass you hold out now for me. Drink it down. How do you say in the States? Chugalug? Elia held the glass of scotch to his lips, hesitated just a fraction of an instant that would be dramatic and yet not overdone. He drank the liquid off, holding his breath. As Elia drank, Sam smilingly took up the other glass and held it to the sunlight. Satisfied it was free of sediment or any other contamination, he sipped at it, watching Kuriakin with ill-concealed triumph. A heavy knock at the door stiffened both of them to alert attention. Sam finished off the scotch and set the glass down on the table. For your hospitality, thank you. It was my pleasure. You will wait until I am on the balcony and have closed the doors. You will then admit your guests. But we're eight stories up, and do as I say. Elia shrugged and waited until the tall man crossed the room, retracting the blade of the dagger into the cane as he went. He stepped out on the balcony as the knocking grew louder and more impatient. He closed the doors, and Elia saw his lean shadow through the fragile pink curtains. He said, 
All right, I'm coming. The knocking was repeated, louder this time. He opened the door, seeing across the threshold the troubled faces of the hotel manager and chilled faces of two men he supposed to be Honolulu homicide detectives. They entered the room, and then there were three of them, paused, staring at the dead girl on the pink shag rug. How did this happen? The hotel manager whispered, sick. I don't know. I was not in the room, Ilya said. Who is she? I don't know. I got in the room by mistake, the wrong room. I found her here. He hesitated, glanced toward the balcony and added, There was a man with her, a tall oriental-looking fellow. One of the detectives, slender and mahogany dark, said, And where is this man now? Ilya inclined his head toward the balcony. He went out there when he heard you knock. The detective jerked his head toward the balcony. This fellow was a stout man in his thirties, temples flecked with gray. He strode across the room. He's armed, Elia said mildly. The detective paused at the door and removed a snub-nosed thirty-eight police revolver from his belt holster. He turned the knobs and threw open the doors. The balcony was bare. Very amusing, the detective said at Elia's shoulder. I didn't think he'd hang around out there, Ilya said. We're on the eighth floor, the detective reminded him. That's what I told him, Ilya said. Oh? Yes, he didn't seem to be duly impressed. The detective didn't smile. Neither am I, he said. I was afraid that would be your attitude. I better warn you, anything you say can be used against you. Ilya shrugged. I just have one thing to say. Yes? Have you ever had one of those days when nothing seems to go right? <laughs>